Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome. Today I'm joined by uh, Academic Foundation Dr. Uh, Ollie Burton, who's currently in F2, uh, working up in Newcastle. Thank you very much for joining me today. Morning, Frank. You're very welcome. It'd be great to talk to you uh, a little bit about your, your medical journey so far. So, yeah, tell us what you're up to at the moment. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, in terms of my, my journey, it's quite quite rapid and, and interesting. I, uh, I did uh, an undergraduate degree in molecular biology, uh, which I then finished and went on to pursue graduate entry medicine at Warwick down in the West Midlands. Uh, so I left that. I then returned to Newcastle where I'd done my first degree, uh, really enjoyed the city. It was kind of close to home, had a really good set of programs. Um, so interviewed for the AFP. Well, it's now the specialized foundation program. It's had a, had a rebrand, but mm. what was the AFP? And I'm now in my F2 year, uh, my second year of practice as a doctor. It comes around immensely quickly. And I'm currently working in the neurology department here, well, clinical neurosciences. Wow, yes, you said so. It's felt like that journey's gone very quickly then. Yeah, it really does. I mean, you obviously, you, when you're in medical school, it, it feels like you're, you're going to be a student for a very long time, obviously, yeah, really even. Does, yeah. Yeah, the course length and all of the studying and the exams and things, but but then you graduate and suddenly you're a doctor and F one has just disappeared, ab- absolutely <laughs> disappeared in a bit of a whirlwind, and F two is doing much the same. So you said you actually did undergrad in microbiology. Throughout that, did you know that you were going to try and come back into medicine? Yeah, um, so, so molecular biology uh, just. To, to to draw the distinction but um i did yeah when i was a a teenager as as obviously most people do i am one of the crowd who who wanted to do medicine ultimately didn't get the grades and then had to have a think about what am i going to do now uh, do i am i still going to try and pursue medicine am i going to do something else and uh it, it's interesting because i actually did as in pursuing the graduate entry pathway, that's not the advice that I would give people now. Okay. I don't think it's the most effective or evidence-based advice if that's the situation that you're in. It's just that that is what I happened to do. Um, but I, d- I did still want to be a doctor during all of that time, but I, I was exploring other opportunities, and one of those involved, for example, a PhD uh at the institution where I was doing that degree. So I I am a big believer in having alternative solutions or, or other plans. Um, even just so you've got more options open to you at every stage, just having maximal choice, I think is really important. Okay, so, so what advice would you give then if someone was in the same situation as you? I would always now, if if someone is in that situation where they they want to do it at A level stage and then they don't get the grades, mm. by far and away the best thing to do is to resit 
like take another year resit and try and get your grades because it's just things like you're not incurring the expense of a full bachelor's degree mm. uh just as a as a stepping stone for medicine if that makes sense and the the odds or i should say the competition ratio for graduate entry medicine are so extreme especially at some uh some medical schools that even though the odds can feel quite overwhelming at any stage you are you are virtually always better applying for an undergraduate program and okay. obviously by the time you get a first degree under your belt your options become somewhat more limited so so if you can it's definitely the best thing to do so yeah so you're on the afp at the moment now called yeah. sfp um obviously yeah. that's you know sort of uh, very competitive are you enjoying that have you started that yet yeah so most people in my situation probably wouldn't have given that the way the sfp now works is well and it has always worked is it's usually four months within your two-year foundation program so it's one rotation that would most commonly fall within the second year so you've got your f1 clinical skills and things underway now uh, i'm doing my sfp in the northern deanery which actually comes with two academic rotations right. one in f1 and one in f2 so i have experienced an academic rotation already uh ab about a year ago and um i got on with it really well actually having it was about having space that was what i found incredibly useful because i, I don't know what your experience has been like or that of your listeners but as someone who's been involved in research for quite a long time and, and has been involved in lots of different projects throughout medical school and things you're always doing these things in your own time you're always doing them in the early hours of the morning or at the weekend or when you're supposed to be studying or doing something yeah, else you're, you're kind of burning the candle at both ends but for the first time i then had this block of time where i was like oh well i've actually got time now i've got paid time yeah. to be doing all of this stuff and if i need to for example if i need to go away and read and read up on a topic like if i was doing a literature review or something or i needed to learn more about a methodology i can just say well that you know that's today's job mm. i'm just going to go to the library and spend today reading about this thing and that's my job and that's what i'm getting paid for <laughs> So yeah, so you, you feel like you get a bit more sort of independence. So this varies by program in, in, uh, from speaking to colleagues and things. I think it really depends on your relationship with your supervisor and, and a few different factors. But in my case, my uh, supervisor and the, the doctors that I work with are, are extremely flexible and happy for me to pursue things the way I want to pursue them. So in the first year, I did a qualitative project uh, like medical education research, speaking to medical students and physician associate students mm. about some of their experiences. And that was a change for me because qualitative methodologies are not something that I'd really um, delved into before. So that took, like I say, a lot of time to get used to those new methodologies and make sure that you're that any 
experiments or research you design is kind of methodologically sound. Uh, so I did that um, in my first my first block and then presented that research and I'm writing up the paper at the moment. And then in my second year, which which is actually upcoming, so yeah. in December, I'll be rotating again. I'm going to be pursuing a completely different project within um, pediatric neuro-oncology. So certainly my experience has been that it's super flexible. What exactly in pediatric sort of neuro-oncology? <laughs> so it's, it's borrowing a few of those qualitative methodologies and trying to apply them in a, in a more surgical setting. So without going into the fine detail, just because ethics and things are still going through, it's to do with the relationship between neurosurgeons when they're operating on children and the children themselves and their families oh, and relatives. Okay. It's, uh, it's uh, let's say for those, for those that aren't really familiar, qualitative research, whereas quantitative research is all about numbers and data and graphs and counting things and measuring things qualitative research is not limited to but can include things like thought feeling understanding um empathizing clarifying it's it's a bit more nebulous and i think you have to be much more careful in how you a how you design your experiments and b what you can draw from the data you gather but it's incredibly valuable. And I think the surgical specialties particularly are an area where we need a lot more qualitative mm. research to happen, I think. Okay. And touching on the, you know, so you're doing a project in, in neurosurgery, you know, you said that you're, you're interested in neurosurgery and medical education. Is that where mm. you see your career going is, is, is to the path of a, of a neurosurgeon? It's where I would like it to go. Um, yeah. as, as we, as we stand now, the, you know, the problem that, that lots of people are finding and lots of people will find is that some, some specialties are simply becoming borderline impossible to actually get yeah. into, even if, even if that's what you want to do. Um, you know, if you look at things, I think cardiothoracics has it the worst where there's about 10 training places a year for the UK, you know, those odds are. Are, are pretty insane but i don't think that's a reason for people not to continue to try and move towards such specialties and i mean i, I know i certainly am the advice that i would give perhaps perhaps medical students now now that i'm working as a doctor and those specialty applications come around incredibly quickly they're at the beginning of f2 you know um okay. which yeah which is <sighs> It's really rapid. Well, November, so in in the next couple of months, uh, all of my colleagues who want to apply for training will be doing so. Uh, you know, fourteen months or whatever after leaving medical school, you have a lot of freedom built into the foundation program to explore lots of different specialties. Um, the fact you get two taster weeks uh, funded, which are yours to do what you want, and that is a, a chance to spend a week in a you know working as a doctor in another specialty and exploring what that specialty might have to offer and i think that's incredibly valuable um so i've been looking very heavily at radiology for example which i think a lot of people 
a lot of people who want to do interventional surgical specialties are starting to cast their eye at radiology a little bit, uh, especially with the expansion of interventional radiology. And it's it's just trying to ask those questions. What, what do I actually want from my career? And for me, the education part is pretty non-negotiable. Okay. Uh, but it's in terms of the day-to-day, -day, you know, what am I going to be doing with my hands? What am I going to be talking to patients about? Am I even going to be talking to patients yeah. at all? Uh, all of these things are are somewhat in flux, I think, which is which is healthy, I think, to be honest. I think that's what, what most of us should be doing. Okay, so you, you said there that, um, you know, the medical education part is, is non-negotiable. I'm assuming mm. you're, you're quite passionate about teaching. Is, is it the next generation of, of doctors and students? Yeah, t both. I, I do want to draw the the well not really draw a line because they can be fluid but but highlighting perhaps that medical education research and medical education delivery are are two completely different oh, okay. things and a, again not not something i would have been able to tell you very much about at medical school but my my sfp program is actually themed in medical education research it's the the program theme of my job i think most of us love getting involved in teaching you know when when we're medical students and i i love teaching the medical students that we have now uh in practical procedures and you know if we have them in neurology talking to them about the various neurological conditions that they'll see because i find it interesting but there is a whole other side to this the the education research side of things which is all about it's all about working out why we do the things we do and what what the best ways of approaching teaching might be um a really good example that i harp on about all the time is uh anatomy education where as far as i know and as far as i'm aware in the evidence base there is no method of teaching medical students anatomy that has been shown to be better than any other <laughs> they're, they're all fairly non-inferior as far as i'm aware which is fine and that's yeah. great um it's it's just one of those things that people you know you you get camps of people i think who are like well you can't you know how are you ever going to be a surgeon without having done cadaveric dissection or you know why aren't we using augmented reality or 3d models or whatever for everyone i think as with a lot of these things and one of my old anatomy tutors has done a lot of research on grit this psychological principle a lot of it simply comes down to grit seemingly and how much a medical student is willing to study it doesn't really matter how you teach them um which which is just kind of funny it, it's one of those things where there's such variation but we see it all the time you know think about how different exams are at each medical school yeah both in terms of the content and how they actually test you the the fact that they're all so different yet we can all have a gmc accredited degree tells you <laughs> tells you a significant amount i think so how i first you know heard about you was um sort of through the medical community on, on social media uh, and it was the way that you sort of advocate for for junior doctors be that our pay mm -hmm. hours and treatment could you sort of expand a bit on on what you've been doing sure so there has been a, a movement recently as in the last 
what, where are we now in September, probably the last six months to a year, there's been slowly building speed where essentially people have been tracking junior doctor wages relative to inflation for quite some time. And the what that has found is that for the best part of a decade, essentially junior doctors have been have been receiving below inflation pay cuts, right? right. Um, well, so I, I should clarify, below inflation pay rises, but real terms pay cuts. Now, again, I'm just to try and cover this really quickly because not everybody is familiar with, with what this actually means. Um, we have two numbers. That, that we need to think about that are important for anyone who works like in a in a society mm. uh, in the UK. The first is your pay. That is the number of pounds that you are paid uh, before thinking about it both before tax and then once it hits your bank account. And so when when all your medical student colleagues, when you all start working, this becomes very important. The second number that you need to think about is inflation. And that is, without putting too fine a point on it, that is a measure of how much things cost yeah. in your economy at a given time. And this will go up or down. The way that we usually think about it is in terms of common staple goods and things that people buy. So you might be looking at how much a loaf of bread costs or how much a bottle of water costs or how much it might cost to top up your electricity meter or, or pay your gas bill or something. You can imagine that all of these staple goods will be going up, up and down at all times. You know, if flour suddenly becomes more expensive, then bread will become more expensive. Mm -hmm. If, as we're seeing at the moment, if you have a, uh, like a fuel crisis or an energy supply crisis, then the cost of energy will go up. And we track all of these things over time find some sort of median value and and that's how we calculate inflation now the reason that's important for or for everyone but for us as doctors is although our pay has has been going up during that time in terms of the absolute number so for the last several years junior doctors have received a 2% annual pay rise uh, that is the number that we get paid pre-tax has gone up by 2% and you might say, well, that's, you know, that's excellent. I want my pay to go up. That's how it should be. Um, and that's right. That is how it should be. The problem is, is that if you have a 2% pay rise in a year where inflation, this measure of how much more expensive everything is, is set at 7% or 8% or, you know, it's been climbing above 10% this year, then what that means is you are in effect getting a real terms pay cut as long as your as long as your pay rise is below that percentage of inflation because although you're earning more it's worth less in terms of what you can spend it on so and this is basically like i say been this is what has been happening to junior doctors for for the better part of a decade every single year and we're approaching it depends how you do the calculation but we're approaching a point where junior doctors have lost possibly as high as 30% of the salary that they were earning at the beginning of that process. Junior doctors are understandably 
very annoyed and aggravated because the job isn't getting easier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of us would argue that it's getting harder, although that's there is some degree of, you, you know, it's it's all about perspective in that sense. It depends when you trained, where you trained and where you're working and there's nuance. But in a situation where your pay is is dropping year on year on year on year on year, um, you you have to do something. You have to intervene. Otherwise, you even that your your new graduate is just starting on such a back foot with lost income. Yeah. Um and that that's going to affect you over the rest of your working career. That number thirty percent is absolutely I mean that's just staggering really, isn't it? I mean why why do you think that is happening? Why does the government think they can they can do that to you know to junior doctors? That is very interesting. I think one of the big problems and it's I obviously don't know the intent of the government at any given time and, and nobody does because if they did then we I, I'm sure that things wouldn't progress have they as they have. But one of the big problems for us is that we have a a monopsony employer, right? And what that means is uh is an economy or a system where you have one organization that controls the supply of work. And as doctors, especially as doctors in training, we are effectively limited to the NHS, right? Certainly when you're a new graduate, you you literally cannot use your medical degree outside the context of an F1 training post. You, you're not allowed. It would be illegal. Um, you are reliant on on there being an NHS and on there being a job in the NHS for, for you to have a job that you just spent five, six years, yeah. you know, training to get. You can only work in that one system. It's similar once we get into training, because if you want to be a specialty doctor of any description, which obviously the overwhelming majority of people do, um, that means you have to have completed the foundation program to start with. So from when you start, you're you're now locked into the foundation program. You also can't train effectively outside of the context of a training program. Now, there is wiggle to that. There are um, specialty doctors and associate grade staff doctors and, and the SAS doctors and the CESA pathway where you can train by other means, but but they are not common. Um, people who are who are trying to progress in training that way towards becoming a consultant, and the 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 point that I'm trying to get at is that doctors are by and large dependent on the NHS for their for their job. Right, very 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 few doctors work purely privately in non NHS settings. Like the the number is vanishingly small of people who do that. Um, and so what that means, bringing it back to your question, is that because there is only one employer, that is the NHS, it's very difficult for for a worker within that system to resist change or to resist conditions of a contract because there is no negotiating, there's no nothing, it's just 
you know, we are we are the employer. Either you accept the changes or you don't have a job anymore. Because yeah. in most settings, you would sort of, you know, down tools and say, well, I want to be paid more, otherwise I'm going to go and work for your competitor or I'm going to go get a job somewhere else. But you can't, as a doctor, do that because there is nowhere else. And, and that's obviously a that's a side effect probably of having a nationalized healthcare system or at least you know one that exists as one one body um this is a consequence of that you end up with a with a monopsony employer so that that will be one element you as a worker in that sort of system you have less power within that system if there is only one supply of yeah. of labor and one supply of work that's one element the other element is or, or one of the other elements i should say is that there's always going to be an ongoing battle with doctors and value for money because the issue is it's in the best interests of the taxpayer one could argue to pay every single worker in the nhs as little as possible for what it is they do because part of what it takes to run a health service efficiently is will be will be you know spending as little as you can and staff wages are probably uh without looking it up i would estimate that wages probably are the single biggest bill that the nhs has to deal with and there will be a balance to strike between how little can you pay your workforce before they start leaving um and doctors are in a are in a funny position you can see there because we can't leave <laughs> even if we yeah. wanted to it's extremely difficult uh but you know you, you hear these examples all all the time of people and it, it does tend to be lower down the agenda for change pay grade but people who were nurses or paramedics or healthcare assistants or whatever simply you know going to work for amazon or aldi or any of these other places that have established graduate schemes and and do actually foster an environment for these intelligent hard-working people in in which they will be rewarded for their intelligence and hard work and they can get a bit of um progression uh but it's 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 a really complicated and multifactorial problem. Yeah, it's funny to so say that about moving into sort of other areas. You know, sort of you, you mentioned that Aldi or, or other things because that's sometimes the consensus that I get is that mm. we do work hard. Obviously, you know, you had to get good grades to get into medical school. If we had put our efforts into another area of work, we would be compensated a lot more sometimes you know better hours and it seems like with medicine the more work you do the more you just feel like you know ground down yeah and it uh one of the 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 things that makes this so complicated i think is the professional identity um side of things which is that so many of us are driven and then i know i am and i don't think it's something to be ashamed of but we are we are driven to some degree by our identity as doctors like that is what we do that is the profession with which we identify and and it's the same when you're a medical student you know you you are simply 
in the cocooning process to become a doctor i i couldn't tell you whether or not i genuinely couldn't tell you where if if they said to me tomorrow ollie you can't be a doctor anymore but you know you've got all of this energy and enthusiasm and and kind of ability to work will just point you at something else mm. and want you to apply the same energy and and uh uh, and and skill and and things that you do out of that i don't know what would happen i don't know whether i would be as motivated because part of what makes me very motivated is is you know practicing the craft and and thinking i want to be a better doctor and that's why i'm doing a lot of the things that i do but but with that aside that was kind of the first yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the preface to the question yes i think it is it is fair to say in other high performance sectors, which is certainly what medicine is, and I'm thinking about things like law, aviation, um, more extreme forms of engineering, situations and occupations where, where you have to be performing at a very high level at all times with no significant mistake, it's yes i think it is fair to say and quite clear that in industry those people have are very highly skilled and very good at what they do you have to treat them with respect and you have to hang on to them that it's it's more retaining them that is going to be in the really in the really best interests of any given company or organization because like I said, they're either they're either gonna leave or they're going they're gonna go and work for your competitor. Yeah. You know, I, I I think about it in every morning in my handover where one of the doctors, potentially even a consultant, is sat on a bin in the handover room instead of on a chair or someone sat on the floor or something. I I do kind of look around the room and think we're we're doing something a little <laughs> a little bit wrong. I would say that I'm sure almost every medical student, junior doctor would agree that we'd like to be compensated more, treated better, but a much smaller segment are actually advocating and, and actively doing something of which you're part of that. What motivates mm. you to do that? Because you're obviously a very busy person. The reason why I got involved personally, and, and I know this is going to vary massively by the people that get involved. I mean, just for context for your, for your listeners. So I was elected to the uh, to the council of the British Medical Association, so the the BMA being the trade union uh, for well, not the trade union, but the biggest trade union for doctors. There are more that exist in the UK. Uh, I was elected some time ago to the council, which is the the executive committee of the trade union. Um, very very recently, we've we've had the the regional junior doctor committee elections uh which which are obviously representing junior doctors that is everyone below consultant grade all around the country and again it's been a pretty clean sweep by candidates that are very strongly engaged in pay restoration as what we're saying this campaign about getting our pay back to where it was before this erosion process started uh why did I get involved? I felt 
when all of this was going on that it, it was basically because of the social media stuff um because i had reach i suppose if you like and and was a known face to to many many people um i i felt as though that would be a good vehicle for getting involved and spreading the message and trying to ultimately trying to communicate the especially when i was a medical student it always felt that the things that went on within the union and and not just the union but within other organizations as well that affected medical students weren't talked about and weren't disseminated very well all of these decisions being made in kind of far off places behind closed doors but by the time it leaks back to you you're suddenly getting paid five percent less than what you were or or something like that um and equally the very positive things that that groups like unions have managed to have managed to negotiate for for example you can now do less than full-time training for any reason in any specialty which is an amazing thing um as long as your program director signs off on it of course which is the second part of the challenge but i just i felt that because i had the platform and because i was going to continue to to build the platform that that would be a good vehicle to engage large numbers of people in in campaigns like this in a it's very different i think to receive an anonymous message from the bma in your in your email inbox or something saying we want you to do xyz and this is why it's important but then it would be really different to have somebody that you know whether that is somebody that you've engaged with online or or even say your consultant comes up to you and says frank this is what's going on at the bma this is why it's important and i think it's important that you mm. you know you're my trainee and someone that i'm looking after i think you should do this i think that's very different and a bit more powerful perhaps in invoking a change and so i just i saw my output in terms of channel and social media stuff in terms of that grassroots organizing and getting people engaged and um and i, I think it's been quite effective in doing so oh definitely yeah i assume you've seen sort of a, a good response people are engaging with what you're saying yeah it's it's uh it's really difficult to measure and i, I almost selfishly wish that, that that there was a um if someone signs up for something like the bma uh if you could put in like a how did you hear about this um thing to try and track because all all i can tell you on my end is that those you know the videos and the posts and things talking about pay and getting involved in the union they they get a fantastic amount of engagement mm. um really fantastic and one of the one of the earlier videos that i made about pay and why doctors pay it is like it is and this engaged people to to sign up with the union um reached one of the the american medical subreddits as well where they oh wow that all of the residents were sharing it around going god their pay is their pay is awful yeah. um uh you 
you get huge reach from these things. And while I can't, I can't directly measure the impact that it has had, which I find slightly frustrating, but, but what's been very gratifying is just that, you know, the people who come up to me at work or the people who email me or message me or, or ask me to come and do talks for, you know, various societies and, and things like this about telling them why fighting the good fight is important. I think all of this forms a part of that. You know, I'm personally very grateful for, for what you're doing. And I know a lot of sort of my colleagues are. And talking about us, what can we do? And mm. I don't think any of us can maybe realistically try and do as, as much sometimes as you. Maybe there'll be a few that, that can. But on a sort of more general level, what can medical students and junior doctors do to, to help ourselves and, and help people like you who are, you know, right at the, the front and centre of fighting this fight? So for medical students, um, one of the most common things I get asked is, is this, is what can we do, you know, if industrial action were to happen, would we be able to take pass and, and all of these questions? The, the answer to that, just to, to summarize all of those things at once, is no. If it's a, if it's a, a worker form of industrial action, then it's obviously only, only the, the workers that are affected. Um, but it, it's about awareness. I think it's about the campaigning and that that is the real value that, that you guys, medical students on the ground bring is energy, enthusiasm, and, and just simply talking and awareness. That is, it sounds a really simple and foolish thing to say, but we're finding despite despite the energy in the country and everything that's going on that there are still doctors and st medical students and doctors that that haven't heard anything about what's been going on and sort of think oh well like what we're we doing i haven't heard anything about <laughs> that um so so again it's it's not underestimating how much work we've still got to do on that front and talking and getting involved in pay discussions um, it's free to join the BMA until October for all junior doctors. The rates are are either free or virtually nothing for all medical students. And I would really recommend joining the BMA as a student anyway. Um, they're a good independent advocate and there are lots of, uh, lots of things you get access to just by being a member. I made a lot of use of the BMJ e-learning modules. Mm. Um, which can be really helpful. There was a surgical skills one on there, which counts as a surgical course for those of you that want to be surgeons and it's free and online. So <laughs> go and have a look at that. Uh, junior doctors, this is where, where it kind of gets important. So be a BMA member, obviously, mm. um, is is the most important thing to do. Like I say, it's free until October. And despite it being free, you get all of the benefits of being part of the union, despite it being free. That includes things like someone to check your rotor, to check that it's not illegal and it is compliant. And somebody who can, you know, who can help provide leverage if your trust isn't doing something that it should be doing or isn't paying you on time mm -hmm. and things like that. Saying I'm getting my union representative involved is a, is a kick that a lot of trusts sometimes need. Uh, 
And the biggest thing at the moment is once you've signed up is making sure that your postal details are correct because we are going to be balloting, assuming we don't get a plan from the government on how they're going to sort our payout in the next, basically. Assuming we don't get some sort of plan from the government in that time, we're balloting for industrial action. Okay. So under UK trade union law, such a ballot has to be done via post. So make sure that your postal details are correct. And that goes for anyone who is a BMA member, uh, because if you are signed up as a member of the union, let's say that I move house and I forget to update my address and the ballot card goes to my old address, a ballot that is not returned is counted as a vote against industrial action. Really? Yes. Wow. Just because of the way that the calculations are done. So it is like unbelievably important that if you are signed up as a member of the union and you're a junior doctor who would be eligible to vote, that your ballot card reaches you and you return it. That, yeah, wow. You know, it, the whole thing lives or dies on that, <laughs> basically. And, and of course, junior doctors um, are moved about the country all the time, aren't they? So they are. Um, yeah, no, very important. Um, so, with this ballot for industrial action can you give us sort of any more information about that in terms of when that might be or how long it would be for we don't know is is the simple answer um because so much of it depends on on the vote ultimately we expect there to be a significant delay well not not a significant delay but there is a natural waiting period that it takes to conduct a ballot because again a lot of this I, I want to be very clear that a lot of the delays and things involved in this process are not anything to do with the bma or people dragging their feet it's in the uk trade union laws or i should say laws that restrict what trade unions can and can't do those laws in the last well, again, better part of a decade, have become increasingly restrictive. Right. If you were being cynical, you might think it was because the government that we've had during that time is quite anti-union yeah. and making it making it more difficult for unions to do things mm. is, is in their best interests. Um, so, for example, again, it's things like your, your ballot has to be done by post, when it could be done online, but that's not allowed under the law. Um, the same with with the the balloting and the calculation. It has to be done by an independent company that has to be engaged to to do the balloting and to calculate the votes and things like that. So again, the delay will will ultimately come down to how long that company takes wow. to do it. Yeah. Um, a lot of the parts of the process are not within our direct control. And again, if you were being cynical, you can probably work out the reasons why. Um, but I suppose that the only thing I can say with some degree of, of reassurance is that things are moving as quickly as they can. The original plan 
before the last meeting of the junior doctors committee was to ballot at the beginning of 2023 right so it's even within the last four months or so we've actually seen the original timeline accelerated quite substantially it was brought forward by three months Mm. all i would all i would say is we're doing things as quickly as we can we don't know at this time what form industrial action would take um nobody knows the one the one that people are familiar with is a strike um which is obviously downing tools and going and standing on the pickup pickup line picket line as it were mm. there are other forms of industrial action that people can take including things like go slows and work to rule it's another one where you you work so painfully accurately to the terms of your contract that things don't actually get done like in the nhs you can imagine that everything would just would grind to a halt immediately um i also want to make you aware that the the nursing body the representative bodies have um i do believe have voted in favor of balloting for industrial action and you're off we're obviously seeing uh we're seeing industrial action coming for uh with other unions as well you know the barristers rmt the rail workers there is a larger question of whether things in this country could move towards a general strike mm-hmm. because of because of the incredibly major levels of dissatisfaction with how the government is handling things but that's a, a larger and much much further reaching question for me personally i'd say i'm a supporter of of those strikes of course and but from what I've seen of the media and some of the public, they they aren't as on board as I thought with, like, for example, the train driver strikes. Mm. You and I, I'm trying to think back to the five day strike that the junior doctors took a, a while back, and yeah. I, and I sort of think to the end, nearing the end of that, I'm sure you'll know better than me, that the public were starting to get a bit, well, come on now, like you know, I'm not, we're not as sure about this as as we once were. Do you anticipate yeah. getting public support? This is very much down to personal opinion, and uh, I, I want to—I do have an answer to this. But before I give that answer, I want to make it very clear that I'm speaking for myself okay. and not on behalf of any other member of the BMA or the BMA as a whole or whatever. What I'm about to give you is my personal opinion. Okay. Um, yes, almost certainly, I think that public opinion will wane during a strike. We are already in the run-up to to industrial action. I think essentially, as soon as as soon as the government or the powers that be get whiff that industrial action may be coming, you start to see a coordinated media campaign against doctors and GPs are the ones that bear the brunt of that because they're the doctors that most people are are familiar with when you talk about doctors and. I, I feel horrendous for our GP colleagues that yeah. time and time again, it's it's them that feels the brunt of that. If we were to engage in industrial action, do I think the public would back us? It is it is difficult to predict. There was a very recent YouGov poll, which I think showed that slightly more than, I can't remember the specific terms, but I think it was slightly more than half, half thought that, junior doctors were underpaid 
but it was still only about half or perhaps slightly less than half that were in favour of junior doctors taking industrial action in order to get their pay improved. Right. Um, uh, so that's a, that's a place to start. Um, if industrial action were to begin and go on, inevitably public opinion would fall, I'm, I'm sure, as that carried on. The thing, my personal opinion, and the thing that I would urge your listeners to reflect on, and they may not agree with me, you may not agree with me, mm but i do not think it is wise or sensible for junior doctors to feel beholden to the opinions of the public in order to determine what we are paid or whether we should take action to improve our pay i don't think that's ultimately sensible because as i've said before the nhs is free at the point of use and obviously the best value that the public can receive is someone being paid as little as possible for the service that they provide, especially in the context of the NHS. And the purpose of a union, especially something like the BMA, the point is to improve the pay and working conditions for doctors. That's literally it. Mm. That's the point. And I am of the opinion that as doctors unless we actually stand up for ourselves and we take the action that it takes, whatever it takes, in order to get our pay restored, it's not going to be restored because it's not it's not in it's not in the public's best interest to pay us more. It's not in the government's best interest to pay us more. All I would all I would encourage people to think is actually there is coming a point where you you have to stand up and and take action to get what it is you want that's the and not just what you want but what you deserve for the hard work and the training that you do very 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 few professions if any rely on the public to judge what that sh what they should be paid or or they most people don't care <laughs> What the public think of how much they are paid that's what i would urge you like why would you yeah you know it, it it doesn't matter it doesn't feed into the equation you should be paid for the level of training you have the responsibility you take and ultimately the work that you do mm. that those are the things that should determine how much you were paid i love working with patients i love talking with patients i've not met a single patient who isn't also a doctor themselves who understands nearly enough about what it is that I do, the training I have, the responsibility I have, and the decisions that I have to make for them to have any say or opinion on, you know, as to what I am paid. M much as I wouldn't, I would never say what I think a nurse should be paid, other than I think they should be paid more, mm. or a banker or a vet or a you know a train driver or a whatever I've, I've just got no understanding of what it takes to do those jobs and to to earn the money that they earn and work in the conditions that they earn it's a complete anathema to me so i don't coming back to what i said before i don't think it is wise or sensible for us to be concerned with what 
with what the population thinks about our pay. Essentially, that would be my because they're never going to be able to fully understand sort of everything that we do. And well, well, and and you know, like I said, for any job, you're not paid based on public opinion. That's just that's mm-hmm. not how the world works. We historically doctors have enjoyed very positive public sentiment because of the relationships that we have with the public and i hope that we continue to have those relationships with the public Definitely, but i also don't think the public should be deciding how much i earn. no i agree and it's an interesting point you make as well about that technically on paper the bma's interest and the public's interests are actually sort of conflicting this could be maybe naive of me to think but when i think of a strike and when i think of of an industrial action and mm. the government then deciding after that whether or not to make change is it not of course the public shouldn't decide how much we earn but if we've got the public on our side does it not really put a lot more pressure on the government to then go okay yeah we are gonna we are gonna do what you're asking for whereas if all the public are against us is it not easier for the government to to just sort of keep ignoring us i think the answer is no because the important the keystone or the linchpin in what you've just described there is us, is the doctors. Mm. Because without the doctors, you you cannot run the health service. Like it's it's not physically possible yeah. to do it. Um where the 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 element that we're using or that would be used to a, to achieve pay restoration there. What what you're you're really asking there is is the important element the public pressure mm. and forcing the government that way, or is it the doctors exerting force that way? It and the answer is that it's the doctors okay. because we what we could do, or you know what what uh, if a group of people were to do industrial action in any setting. I'm not just talking about doctors, but you could say we'll get the public on side and the public will pressure them. The prob- one of the big problems that you'll know we have in this country is that without making it too political, for reasons best known to themselves, the populace will continue to vote for conservative governments <laughs> yeah. against their own interests, one after another, for mm. some bizarre reason. As we see time and time again, the government and the, mem- the members of the cabinet can do things that that seemingly fly in the, pay- fly in the face of public support and again, not in the best interests of the country without any form of consequence whatsoever for them. So so essentially, I think to answer your question, I don't think the I don't think the public exerts exerts nearly as much influence over the government as a lot of people think it does. I think okay. especially the the most recent set of governments we've had view the public in general with a sort of quiet disdain yeah. that that enable them to do the things they want to do and have the power that they have. But do I think that by and large, the government acts in the best interests of the country? No. So because of that, I don't think even if the public were very, very upset, I don't think that would exert an awful lot of pressure on the government, especially to act quickly. We, we, We have to bring this back to the doctors and we have to remember that this is about junior doctors it may be about consultants too if if they if their representative body decides to to also ballot which they may do 
yeah, the, the, the answer is, is that this is about the doctors. It's about highlighting, if it comes to, to IA, that, that without your medical workforce, and I'm talking about doctors there, you, you can't run a health service. So it's, uh, I think things have to continue even with the knowledge that, that public opinion is likely to sour. I could talk to you all day about the sort of the junior doctors of Bay and I certainly understand it a lot better now. Um, but we'll sort of come to the end of, of today's podcast and this is a Surgical Society podcast. You yourself are, are hoping to go into surgery. Could you sort of mm -hmm. leave us with um, like just an anecdote of a, of a patient that you've had since, since practicing that, that you found, you know, interesting for, for one reason or another? Oh, what a question. You know what? Yeah, I'll give you a, a very a very short summary. Um, but it happened this week, so I'll uh, I'll I'll share it with you. Which I had a I happened to see a patient when I was working on a different ward that I'd previously been looking after several months ago when I was still an F one actually. And this person had very very bad uh, chronic neuropathic pain from a compressed nerve root. It was a real learning point for me as a young doctor because pain management is is a difficult science at the best of times and i had really really struggled to get this patient's pain under control um you know up to and including max doses of like every <laughs> every pain medication you can think of to the point where the side effects became so severe that that they couldn't tolerate them. Mm. I should say this wasn't just me making rogue medical decisions. No, this was in conjunction with yeah. with the pain team and my consultant and all of this, but it was very difficult. And this patient would cry most days when I saw them on the ward round, didn't know whether they were going to walk again. Everything just felt incredibly hopeless. And I saw them this week after having had a microdiscectomy that is a neurosurgical operation to remove disc fragments in the spine, compressing the nerve root in this case. And they were walking around on the ward, no. like pain-free. Really? Yeah, I was just um, quite quietly overwhelmed, I think. It was uh, a really almost miraculous. Yeah. Well, that's an absolutely fantastic way to end. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. You're very welcome, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode of the Surgical Society podcast, where I was joined by Dr. Ollie Burton, and we talked about the current junior doctor crisis. So please, if you're a medical student, remember to sign up to the, the BMA. And join me in two weeks' time where I talk to Jack Wellington, a final year medical student at Cardiff University and the most published medical student in the country as he shares his tips and tricks on getting ahead and building a portfolio in medical school.